If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Imagine somebody that you were married to for three years deciding to execute you. She would have been out of her mind with worry and grief and anxiety. That was Susanna Lipscomb on Anne Boleyn. People who believed that they had uh, ownership in enslaved people came forwards in 1838 so that they could receive slave compensation monies. And that was Kate Donington discussing a project about British slave ownership. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And for details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. On the 19th of May, 1536, Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn, was beheaded at the Tower of London after being found guilty of adultery, incest and conspiring the king's death. Since then, debate has raged as to whether Anne was indeed guilty as charged or whether she was in fact the victim of a courtly conspiracy. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met Tudor historian Susanna Lipscomb at the Tower of London to find out what lay behind Henry's decision to execute his once beloved wife. And listen out for one of the famous Tower of London ravens in this interview. Right, so Susanna, we're standing on Tower Green, the site of Anne Boleyn's execution in 1536. Can you perhaps take us through her last hours? What would have happened to her? So Anne would have been told that she was going to be executed before and actually when in the build-up to her execution she got quite hysterical um, and famously made that comment about having a a little neck um, which was thinking that the executioner could do his job swiftly. Mm. She then was brought out here onto Tower Green and um, mounted the scaffold. Uh, She removed her her hood herself which is an English gable hood rather than the French ones and then took that off and um, her, her ladies tied a blindfold around her eyes Uh, she went out wearing a a beautiful ermine robe and of course that was taken off her her gown and um, and then she knelt and she uh, was beheaded by an executioner who'd specially been brought from France uh, who beheaded her uh, or could behead a man or a woman whilst they knelt uh, with a sword as opposed to an axe Um, because I think of her French background she'd spent a lot of time in France Mm. And as a kindness and a courtesy, people who were beheaded by axe quite often died horribly. The executioners weren't necessarily good at their jobs, whereas this was a a swift, clean stroke. And was that her request, or would that have been Henry? We don't have any evidence that she requested it. Mm. I think the impetus came from Henry. And and she died here, and it was uh, about 8 o'clock in the morning. She also, before she died, made a a short speech... Mm. um, exhorting the small crowd of people because it was a private execution around her um, to be obedient to the king 
yeah. and, and saying I mean actually speaking very nicely of him she she says that never was there a gentler or more merciful prince and that to her he was ever a good and gentle and sovereign lord which is quite surprising in the yeah. circumstances and just going back then to the beginning when they, they sort of first met um, what was her appeal for Henry? The interesting thing about Anne Boleyn is that she doesn't seem to have been phenomenally good looking uh, even her friends <laughs> described her as good looking enough so uh, sort of modestly pretty but she was perhaps unusual uh, at the time we have to remember that at the time sort of being very fair being f- fair haired blue eyes was considered attractive she had what was thought of as sallow skin so she was yeah. sort of more tanned and darker hair and dark flashing eyes so perhaps it wasn't her looks but it was her character she was uh, sophisticated mm. she was cosmopolitan she'd spent all this time in France she spoke French and Henry liked to speak French too uh, and she was witty and probably intelligent mm. um, and elegant as well there was a, so she, her character was very attractive very appealing to him uh, Henry interestingly was attracted to strong women on the whole Jane Seymour perhaps is an exception but Catherine Parr Catherine of Aragon Anne Boleyn they were all actually very strong intelligent women and he, he wasn't looking for, for someone who was going to be submissive most of the time and how does she compare then to Henry's first wife as I say, both of them were strong women, and Catherine of Aragon, of course, was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. She'd been brought up by uh, a, a woman who was a strong leader, mm. um, a, a warrior, and Catherine was that. Catherine was pious, Anne Boleyn also was pious, but in very different ways, as we know. They were yeah. attracted to different parts of the of the church, different denominations in the end. Um, but perhaps... Anne was more outspoken than Catherine. Um, perhaps she had more of attraction to the court and the culture of the court, to dancing, to uh, poetry, to, to the sort of things that Henry really enjoyed mm. than Catherine did. Okay. And the relationship between Henry and Anne has sort of famously been recorded as being quite tempestuous. Um, was that the case? And how did that change after they were married? I think it was tempestuous. I th- it's been described uh, by both, actually, Eric Ives and George Bernard as being a sort of relationship of sunshine and storms, and I think that was true. But it was a very powerful attraction between them. Uh, as I understand it, Anne chose not to sleep with Henry in the time... There's six or seven, seven years before they married. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there was obviously... Uh, an attraction to her for something he wasn't yeah. getting. He couldn't feel like he could quite catch her, although it wasn't entirely sort of chase their relationship by any means. And I think that attraction remained strong after their marriage. We have descriptions of Henry and Anne throughout their marriage being described as merry together. They're described as merry together more than Henry and any of his other wives. Mm. And that carries on through into the autumn of 1535, uh, they're both very disappointed and upset by Anne's miscarriage in January 1536. But for the most part, it does seem that they had an awfully good time with each other. I think we, we might need to think of them as a sort of a passionate couple who, <laughs> who argued but then made up as well. And wh- how, how did the public react to Anne, uh, particularly when she was, when she was crowned? 
public reception of Anne wasn't great. There was a lot of support for Catherine of Aragon. And some of the comments that we have in the documentation about Anne call her things like a goggle-eyed whore. So that's just one person, but it maybe represents a, a, yeah. a feeling among the public. Of course, Henry wasn't terribly interested in the public. The public weren't terribly important yeah. in 16th century England. They weren't the people who made decisions. Um, and ultimately, Henry wasn't that bothered, I don't suppose, by their opinions. But the, 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 the small amount of evidence that we have suggests that there might have been hostility towards Anne. Um, and she famously miscarried a, a baby boy in January 1536. She already had Elizabeth at the time. Um, and that was just four months before her execution. Do you think it was this that perhaps caused Henry to, to believe that their, their marriage was doomed and he would never have a son? Of course, it must have been horrible for Henry and Anne to experience this miscarriage. It possibly wasn't her first. The evidence is rather unclear. I, I, I think it probably was, but there's, possib- there's a possibility that she miscarried in 1534 and even possibly in 1535. Um, but this miscarriage, they could identify at three and a half months that it would have been a boy. It must have been really, really hard on both of them. Mm. It must have seemed that history was repeating itself. Catherine of Aragon, of course, famously... <laughs> had six pregnancies and only one daughter, Princess Mary, survived. The others were stillbirth, the infant mortalities, you know, Prince Henry who died at seven weeks. And it must have been terribly upsetting to think that this was going to happen again. But there is that very long gap of four months. Mm. And I don't think that we have sufficient evidence to conclude that Henry therefore makes up his mind to get rid of Anne. In fact, I don't think that's what happens at all, no. in my, my opinion. Um, historians disagree <laughs> wildly over what happened at Anne Boleyn's fall. So I don't think it was the final nail in the coffin by any means, but I think it would have been devastating to them both. And, and once Henry had made the decision to put Anne aside, um, why did he not divorce her? I mean, he'd, he'd already divorced one wife. Why did he not uh, do the same with Anne? Why did she have to die? So, there's, to be clear here, I, I don't think that Henry decided to get rid of Anne until presented with evidence of her adultery. That's my, mm. my perspective on it. Uh, so, when he thought that she was guilty of adultery, um, she was also charged with uh, incest and conspiring the king's death. The crucial one is conspiring the king's death. Mm. According to the 1534 Treasons Act, to imagine the death of the word, death of the king in words was treasonous. Okay. So the idea that she had been talking of his death and possibly hoping to make it happen meant that she'd committed high treason. Mm. So putting her aside, putting her in a nunnery or something wasn't an option. He did actually, of course, have their marriage annulled, which is what you know his the, the thing we call divorce in inverted commas mm-hmm. to Catherine of Aragon was was, a, was that their marriage was annulled, and he had his marriage to Anne Boleyn annulled as well before she died, so that her daughter Elizabeth became illegitimate uh, and not in the line of succession. Henry later put Elizabeth back in the line of succession. Mm. But uh, at the time, that seemed important. But it's really because what she did was treasonous. And what evidence is there to, to say that she did, you know, imagine the king's death and, and, and speak of it? 
We don't have the trial documents, which means that we don't have all the evidence we would need to know exactly what was going on. But we have other pieces of evidence from which we can derive a conclusion. And one of the pieces of evidence we have is a letter, there are a series of letters from Sir William Kingston, who was the constable of the tower at the time, reporting what Anne herself had said when she was in the apartments just over there, mm-hmm. waiting, for her, awaiting her execution, awaiting her fate. And she was racking her brains to sort of figure out what had got her into this mess in the first place. And she reported a number of conversations with the men of the court. And one of them was with Henry VIII's friend, confidant, personal body servant, Sir Henry Norris. Um, And in this conversation, Anne had teased him uh, and and said that, that if all came to the king but good, you would look to have me. And this wonderful phrase, she says to him, you look for dead men's shoes. Now, this is the only evidence that we have of Anne talking of the king's death. Uh, and it must be this yeah. that's the evidence that's used to suggest that she was conspiring the king's death. Or there's something else in the trial documents we've lost, but that's all we've got. And the, and the accusations of adultery, um, were, they, were, they, were they real? Were they just used to besmirch her name even more? I don't think that Anne was guilty of adultery with her brother or with anyone else. I think that Henry believed that she was, so mm. that's the crucial thing. Um, the account that's most persuasive, and uh, there, were, there were several different versions of what happened, either that it was uh, that Anne was actually guilty, which is a case that's been argued by a historian called George Bernard at the University of Southampton. Um, Professor Bernard thinks that actually what, what happened is you know, just what's written there, that she did commit adultery and there's no smoke without fire. Although even he will finally conclude that we should give him the Scottish verdict of, of not not proven and and uh, that means that she may well um, not be innocent, which is what we tend to conclude. But the evidence suggests to me that she was innocent. When she was here, she swore on peril of her soul's damnation, both before and after taking the Eucharist, that she was innocent, which was a a really important act at this time. Uh, And Anne was a religious woman. Uh, She said to William Kingston, the constable of the tower, that she was uh, as clear from sin as uh, as he was, and that you know she was the king's true wedded wife. And ultimately, only one person, Mark Smeaton confessed to adultery. All the others uh, protested their innocence to the end and protested her innocence to the end. At a time when if you were going to die, if you were going to meet your maker, you would want to be shriven. You Mm. would want to confess and to be absolved. Mark Smeaton did confess, however. He confessed to sexual intercourse with the Queen on three occasions. Mark Smeaton was a a commoner. He was a musician at the Queen's household. He was an easy target for Cromwell uh, when Cromwell arrested him and interrogated him at his house in Stepney. And Smeaton was possibly tortured. We've got three accounts. One says he wasn't. One says he was racked here in the tower. And one says that he had a rope tied around his head with knots in it uh, that was tightened. So possibly he was just confessing under torture, although he never retracted it. Possibly he, there was something else going on. There's an account, again, from Anne's recollections that, of a conversation she had with Mark uh, just before the accusations came about. And in it, he says to her something quite strange. He sort of treats her with a great deal of familiarity, which, given that he was a commoner, was an odd thing to do now one could use that as evidence that they were having an affair of course (laughs) 
the way that she dismisses him and says, she, you know, you cannot look t- um, to have me, you know, pay the attention to you that I would pay to a noble person, mm. um, suggests that she finds his behaviour quite odd. And my my complete speculation, but my theory is that there's uh, that actually something of the way he responds to her. L- reminds me of uh, you know stalkers of celebrities that there's yeah. a sort of uh, he thinks the kudos will be conferred on him by uh, by this, the act of saying he's committed adultery with the queen you know all the recent work of, by psychologists on confessions forced confessions and um, confessions when people haven't done anything when they're not even forced voluntary confessions yeah. to, you know fantasy and all of that it's very powerful and I think applies in this case so in short I don't think she was guilty <laughs> You've mentioned Thomas Cromwell, um, famously painted as quite a shady character in, in, in uh, Anne's, Anne's death. Do you think he was behind it? Was it, was it a plot between him and the Seymours who you know, wanted to get Jane Seymour onto the throne in Anne's place? That's a, a powerful theory that was being put forward, uh, perhaps most uh, cogently by Eric Ives. And it's based on a piece of evidence in a letter written... Uh, by Eustace Chapuis, who was the imperial ambassador to Charles V, his, his master, the Holy Roman Emperor. And Ch- Chapuis says that um, Cromwell has uh, said to him um, in the letters in French, il se mit à, f- à fantasier et conspirer le dit affaire. He, he set himself to think up and to conspire the said affair. And so this piece of evidence, the he in question, of course, just like in Hilary Mantel's books, is Cromwell. And uh, so the he, the he in question being Cromwell means that he himself has plotted against Anne. Mm. Uh, but this piece of evidence was often used without consulting the sentence before, which suggests that the person who had told Cromwell to do this was actually Henry. It says that he'd been authorised and commissioned by the king to bring an end to the mistress's yeah. trial, to do which he had thought up uh, and um, managed, essentially, conspired this could be the whole affair. Mm. So it suggests that Henry had told Cromwell to do it, and therefore Henry VIII can't be taken out of the picture. Now, the question is, of course, about whether there's a, there was a plot with Jane Seymour, um, or the Seymours, to get Jane on the throne. And Eric I've suggested that actually Jane was being coached to try and interest Henry, that she was being coy just in the way that Anne had been, um, and that that's what's going on. The thing is, it's not persuasive for me, personally, because I don't think that Cromwell had sufficient reason to want to get rid of his erstwhile ally, mm. Anne, um, on the questions of differing opinions on foreign policy, what to do with the money from the dissolution of the monasteries. They're not, it seems to me, sufficiently robust motives to destroy a queen. And we've always got to remember Henry's part in it. Mm. So I think that Cromwell was operating on instruction and not independently. Um, Anne was refused an audience with um, Henry, wasn't she, before before her death. Um, do you think that perhaps she could have persuaded Henry to, to go back on his decision to have her executed if she'd been allowed to see him? I think she probably could have done. I mean, famously, Catherine Parr had a moment where she persuaded Henry that she wasn't a heretic when there was an accusation made against her possibly by Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester, that she was. Um, she met with Henry and um, it, there's that, that famous speech from the Taming of the Shrew mm. uh, looks very close to John, of Katerina sort of, you know, it's very close to John Fox's account of what Catherine Parr said yeah. to Henry. Now 
who knows if where John Fox got that from and if he was just making it up all himself but it suggests that Catherine had persuaded Henry I'm sure that if Anne had had a chance to do the same she would have been just as persuasive and, and Anne's trial I mean the, the buildings that it was held in are no longer here at the at the tower are they um, was it a foregone conclusion do you think was it an actual trial it couldn't be an actual trial because it happened three days after the trial of the other men involved. And once they'd been found guilty of adultery with Anne, mm. she had to be found guilty of adultery with them. It happened just in the Great Hall, which was over here. Uh, it was a huge place. It could hold um, 2,000 people. And Anne and her brother were tried together on the 15th of May. And they were tried by their peers, by, by um, peers of the realm, um, and all of them found Anne guilty. And the extraordinary thing, of course, is it was conducted by her uncle, mm. the Duke of Norfolk, a very scheming, unpleasant man. But, uh, you know, I wonder what he must have thought as he condemned his niece to die. Yeah. And, and how important do you think Anne is to, to English history? I think it's fair to say that Anne has acquired an importance that perhaps is, is disproportionate, this is sort of to her place. Um, and that's partly to do with the fact that we think of her in a sort of, almost a kind of proto-feminist, you know, that she was somebody who knew what she wanted and mm. got what she wanted and held out for, you know, that sort of thing. But of course, it depends how much responsibility you give her for persuading Henry towards the break with Rome. Mm. Um, I suppose just the fact that he wanted her ultimately and possibly that she gave him things like the, the obedience of a Christian man by William Tyndale in which it said it was shameful for princes to be under the authority of popes that sort of thing um, persuaded Henry that actually he should be in direct uh, line to God and there shouldn't be anyone intervening and he wanted to marry her so in that way I suppose she could be held responsible for one of the most important um, moments of English history mm. uh, that, that break which has been so fundamental to defining our sense of our national identity mm. and creating a sense that we are an island nation and uh, have a special sort of role and do you think later queens um, were able to, to learn anything from Anne's mistakes or, or you know, how she was treated it doesn't seem so. Jane Seymour apparently at one point started to intervene in the dissolution of the monasteries. And according to the account that we have, Henry said that you know a previous queen had meddled and look what had happened to her. So perhaps that sort of sense that she was involved in politics was uh, not very good. But Jane obviously didn't learn immediately from that. Uh, and Catherine Howard certainly didn't learn. Uh, Catherine Howard, I think, probably was guilty of adultery. Um, there's a letter that she wrote to Thomas Culpepper that she signs off yours as long as life endures which rather telling <laughs> I think she was foolish and she didn't certainly I mean for goodness sake a, a wife of your has been killed mm. for committing adultery or at least on the you know the accusation that she's yeah. committed adultery and you're a young bride of that, that husband who did that and you think yes I'll entertain this young good looking man in my rooms and that's all going to work out fine <laughs> so no, I don't think they learned no it doesn't sound like it and, and how do you think Elizabeth felt growing up with a father who, who's had her mother executed and then you know declared her illegitimate 
It's obviously very hard to know. Uh, I think she treasured her mo- mother's memory. We, she wore a ring um, which has a picture of Elizabeth and, I mean, some have argued it could be a young Elizabeth, mm. but it could well, I think, be Anne Boleyn in, in, in this little sort of um, locket-type enamel ring. Uh, and she was wearing that at her death, so it's possible, I think, that she actually really did hold her mother very close to mm. her heart. It must have been awful to think that her husband, her father, had destroyed her mother. It, it must have really stayed with her, and yet she was very proud of her father as well. She had a very complicated legacy. Yeah. We told our Facebook and Twitter fans that we were coming to meet you at the Tower of London today, and they sent some questions in. Um, so. Darcy Mayers and Matt Orton wanted to know whether there's any evidence behind the rumours that Anne had six fingers on each hand. The answer is not reliable evidence. There was a, a chap called Nicholas Sander who was a Catholic writing in Elizabeth's reign. Mm. And many of the uh, misconceptions that we have about Anne come from his writing. He obviously wasn't a big fan. <laughs> And he describes her having a large walked goitre, and um, and the six fingers come from that from him. Um, but he's writing fifty years after her death. Yeah. Uh, he didn't know her. He's not going on descriptions, as far as we're aware. I think it's just about creating an image of a monster and a monster in the conception of the 16th century. Uh, a monstrous person needs to have a monstrous appearance. Of course, it's, you know, things yeah. that's thrown at Richard III, for example. Mm. So um, that's where it comes from. It doesn't mean she did. Okay. Um, and Philippa Connolly, also on Twitter, um, wants to know why is Anne still such a source of fascination for people? It's partly because of her historic significance in the break with Rome. But I think it's often largely to do with a sense of her character. I am always amazed by the extraordinary levels of devotion to Anne uh, in sites like Am- the Anne Boleyn Files or Tudor History or you know, all these wonderful sites online that um, talk about Anne Boleyn uh, in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn is another one. And the columns that people put on there suggest that for many people she's a source of inspiration in that they have a sense of her being a woman who followed her heart, did what she think, thought was right, um, who was a woman of strong convictions, who didn't cave to Henry, who waited for what she wanted, which <laughs> yeah. was to be married. Um, and there's a sense that she's almost seen as this kind of proto-feminist heroine. Yeah. I, I, it is about an idea of Anne as much as the historic Anne. Okay. But it's a very persuasive one. Yeah, very. And just looking at the people sort of crowded around you know, the site where she, she was executed, you definitely get a feel of that here, don't you? Um, and um, Kelly Lynch wants to know, does Anne get enough credit for Elizabeth I's successful reign? I think she probably does get enough credit because Anne, unfortunately, wasn't around long enough to bring her daughter up. I think the person who was particularly pivotal in forming Elizabeth's character was Catherine Parr, her stepmother, who was herself a strong woman who uh, led the country uh, in Henry VIII's absence when he was away in France fighting the wars um, and who 
was a woman of piety and who demonstrated to Elizabeth what a, what a queen might look like. So I think obviously whilst Elizabeth inherited certain things and certain characteristics possibly from her mm. mother, she was very sadly not around during her formative years and we have to look to others to understand why Elizabeth was as she was. And um, just finally, Michelle uh, Bronson on Facebook wanted to know, um, is it true that Anne's stillborn son, the, the one that was uh, miscarried in 1536, was he actually deformed in some way? Is there evidence to, to suggest that? The evidence, again, comes from Nicholas Sander, that Catholic, okay. writing 50 years later. <coughs> so he says that Anne gave birth to a shapeless mass of flesh, which has been used to suggest that, she, that the fetus was deformed. There's absolutely no evidence at the time, from 1536, that there was anything wrong with the fetus, mm. apart from it being only three, I mean, three and a half months yeah. old. I mean, you know, possibly, possibly there was, possibly there was a reason why she miscarried, but there is no reliable evidence to sustain it at all. And it's been used, it's become so salacious as a theory, it's been used to suggest that she was involved in witchcraft mm. or... You know that there was because of the deformity that Henry looked at it and thought, "Oh, I must get rid of Anne." And uh, you know, I, there's nothing to sustain that at all. So, if we walk away from Tower Green, just over there, actually, before we leave, though, is, is the bell tower. You can't see it now because there are these Elizabethan buildings in front of it. But Jane Spooner, who's the curator of historic buildings here, tells me that when Anne was executed, there would have been a clear view to Tower Green. And that's where Sir Thomas Wyatt, the poet, was imprisoned. He was accused, but, but somehow managed to get off. Um, and he would have seen Anne's execution. And he said, he says in poetry afterwards, that, that this dreadful sight sticks in his head day and night. Uh, and also says that he... Um, would rather die himself, aged after the common trace, than dazed with dreadful face, which is the terrible courtly alternative that he's seen here. And if we go this way, we're, we're heading towards the area where Anne's apartments would have been. Okay. No longer standing. But if we, if we go up here, we'll be able to see where they were. And Anne's execution, who, who actually would have been present at the, uh, you know, her beheading? It wasn't a public execution, unlike the executions on Tower Hill, which would have been, you know, could have been a crowd of thousands. Yeah. It was just a small number of people. It would have been people, possibly people like uh, ambassadors, uh, high nobility, um, very few people. Mm -hmm. Her ladies there were there with her. Uh, Henry was not. And on our way to go and see those apartments, this is Traitor's Gate. So... In the 16th century, this would have gone, the Thames would have come up this far. And this is where she, this would, is have where she would have arrived. Yeah, uh, it's not technically, it's called Traitor's Gate now. It's, mm. the, it's the water gate at St. Thomas's Tower. And then taken up to the, the apartments. That's right. Taken to the apartments that she had stayed in before her coronation. Oh, right. Which must have been so bitter for her. Can we just walk through here? Mm hmm. So this space here, just near the White Tower, uh, now near the, the shop, now near the Raven's <laughs> shop, yes, and the Raven's enclosures, would have been the area of um, 
the private apartments. And how long was she there for again? Sorry, before she was, she there was... for three weeks. Okay. Um, and was she allowed to walk in, in the grounds, or was she confined to her to her quarters? As far as I know, she was confined. But I'm I'm I I haven't read anything about I haven't come across any evidence of her being out in the garden. So so she she was brought here on the second of May, fifteen thirty six, mm. and executed on the nineteenth. So almost three weeks. Must have been a terrible time. And do you think she do you, do you think she expected to die? Do you think during that time she she thought that would happen? It's hard to know. I mean, she at first she's protesting her innocence and saying um, that they can, you know, only accuse her and no one, they can't produce any witnesses mm. and therefore she will have justice. But as time goes on, and presumably, you know, she doesn't get to see Henry, so that must have been an indicator of what was happening. As time went on, she seems to have experienced all sorts of different emotions and become quite hysterical and, uh, you know, made these wild prophecies about whether it would, you know, if it rained or it wouldn't rain again if she was killed and that he'd send her to a nunnery and all sorts of different wild speculations. And I think she was sort of losing it, really. I mean, you know, imagine somebody that you were married to for three years deciding to execute you. I mean, it was... She would have been out of her mind with worry and grief and anxiety. And was she able to see her daughter during that time? Yes, she wouldn't have been allowed to say goodbye. Strangely enough, recreating exactly what had happened in terms of the separation of mother and daughter between Catherine of Aragon and Mary. So even when Catherine of Aragon was dying, Mary wasn't allowed to see her mother. You know, both of these, both of these girls grew up without their mothers at crucial times mm. and yet became our first Queen's Regnant mm. but there's one final place we must visit whilst we're here which is the chapel of St Peter Advincula which is where Anne is actually buried so when she was um, after the execution was she taken straight to the chapel? she was put in an, um, a simple arrow chest and she was buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel. It's now under the floors, um, up at the altar end. It wasn't designed to be a place of pilgrimage. It wasn't designed for people to visit her and memorialise her. So here we are in the chapel of St Peter of Incula. So it's thought that Anne is buried near here, under, under the altar. And this is where she was brought, just a short distance away from where she was executed. There are many people buried in this chapel. Anne was one of only seven who was executed on Tower Green, okay. and therefore buried here. I mean, also Lady Jane Grey, for example, buried here. Mm. Catherine Howard, the three queens under this floor. It's interesting, there's no, there's no sort of marker for her grave at all, really, is there? I mean, there's a stone on the floor with her, her name, but nothing to kind of show that there's somebody buried there. Yes, but people come and they are, they are still moved by mm. just knowing that she was here. Um, and it is a moving space, isn't it? Yeah. So why... why was it the, the, the way that she was um, 
the way that she died and, and the circumstances surrounding it, that's why she didn't... There is nothing to really say that she's here. She was disgraced. She mm. was disgraced. She was a traitor. According to the law of the land. Interestingly, uh, she was accused of adultery, incest and conspiring the king's death. And mm. uh, adultery wasn't actually technically treason. Okay. Um, if you um, violated the Queen under the, the treason law of 1352, that was treason. But consensual adultery wasn't treason. It had to be made a crime uh, in the indictment, um, the attainder against Catherine Howard. Mm. So it was only this conspiring the king's death. And she wasn't accused of witchcraft either, which everyone always says. But it was because she was a traitor by the, the terms of the law, the law of the land that she had an unmarked grave. And this is just, you know, the nearest chapel. So we're talking to one of the beef eaters here at the Tower of London. What's your name? Rob. Hi, Rob. Um, what do you think of Anne Boleyn? Do you think she was guilty? Does she deserve to die? Yeah, she, she had a, a lot of enemies in the in the court, but she also had a, a lot of friends. And yeah. uh, when you consider that the king uh, couldn't get what he actually wanted and he just wanted uh, rid of her, why he didn't divorce her is uh, yeah. beyond me, because he got rid of the first one that way. He got his, his man uh, uh, to uh, conjure up a load of charges. A brother and everyone else copped it as well, so it's... Uh, not the best times, but I don't no. think she deserved no. the ending that she actually got. God rest her soul. So uh, lots of uh, people come up here and lay uh, flowers on the oh, right. on her graveside, which is is kind of nice. And there's a, a a basket of red roses that uh, unknown. Uh, we don't know who the benefactor is, but they're placed on her uh, grave in the chapel royal every year on the anniversary really? of her death. Yes. And has many fans. Uh, she has lots of yeah. uh, fans in and around the globe. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of females, she's got lots of support there. Yeah. And uh, some uh, ladies I've, I've let go into the chapel and have a look. Some of them have actually sunk to their knees and burst out crying as if Gosh. she's, uh, you know, a, a nearest and dearest relative. So, you know, they, they can empathise and, more importantly, sympathise with her. That was Susanna Lipscomb and Charlotte Hodgman on location at the Tower of London. Susanna has written a feature on Anne Boleyn for our April issue, which goes on sale today as it happens. And in fact, our April issue is something of a Tudor special, as we also have pieces on the Spanish Armada and Tudor eating habits. Plus, you can also find out what it was like to live like a Roman and discover how the Normans transformed England's churches. You can get hold of this magazine in all good newsagents and digitally. And details of all of that are on our website, historyextra.com. And I should also mention that Susanna Lipscomb is going to be appearing on BBC4 next Wednesday, presenting Hidden Killers of the Victorian Home. It will be broadcast at 9pm and should be a really interesting programme. And now we have a short advert. Author Gordon Campbell discusses the curious phenomenon of the ornamental hermit in the 18th century. The phenomenon of the, the ornamental hermit is a very curious one. In the 18th century, landowners constructed buildings in their gardens, things like um, classical temples, for example. And some landowners in some kinds of gardens constructed hermitages. And these were either places where they could go themselves to be melancholy 
or they were places where they hired an ornamental hermit to sit in the hermitage and to represent melancholy and, and, and sobriety of thinking. The Hermit in the Garden, from Imperial Rome to Ornamental Gnome, by Gordon Campbell, is available now directly from Oxford University Press and all good bookshops. A website recently launched by University College London allows people to explore their ancestors' involvement in slave ownership in the British Caribbean, as well as providing a wealth of information about abolition in 1833. Kate Donington, a researcher on the project, spoke to BBC History magazine's Matt Elton about the research. So when did the project start? Well, the project actually stemmed from some exceptional PhD research by uh, Nick Draper, who uh, then went on to become one of the project uh, research associates. So Nick started his uh, PhD research and he wanted to work with uh, the slave compensation registers, which are uh, available in the National Archives. And uh, Nick wanted to uh, investigate who who, who the slave owners were uh, at the ending of uh, British Caribbean slavery. So really the project stemmed from from Nick's PhD research, which was then turned into uh, an award-winning book, The Price of Emancipation. Um, And then Nick, together with his uh, supervisor, Catherine Hall, and another uh, research associate, uh, Keith McClelland, uh, the three of them came up with with this project, uh, the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, which has been funded by the uh, ESRC, the Economic Social Research Council, um, and that project began in 2009 and was fully funded for three years. So, um, in many ways, the project kind of stemmed from some of the uh, 2007 bicentenary commemorations of the abolition of the slave trade as well. Um, the people on the project uh, felt that British history tended to focus on the ending of slavery rather than this much longer history of participation. And so as a project, they wanted to put the uh, history of slave ownership back into the narrative of British history. What new information is now available online as a result of the project? Well, the project uh, has involved a major digitisation of the transcriptions of the slave compensation registers. So the slave compensation registers were really a kind of an epic work of bureaucracy. Um, People who believed that they had uh, ownership in enslaved people came forwards in 1838 so that they could receive slave compensation money. So one of the measures uh, to in order to secure the abolition of slavery in 1838 was the payment of compensation to slave owners. Um, And this was based on the idea that um, enslaved people were considered to be property. And if the government was going to interfere with property rights, uh, it had to uh, compensate the property owners. And that was the mechanism through which um, slave ownership compensation money was paid. So these people came forwards, uh, they gave details uh, which included uh, their names, their addresses, their gender, uh, where uh, their estates were and who they believed that they had ownership of um, in terms of of the figures of people. You don't get uh, information which gives you any kind of detail of who the enslaved were in the slave compensation registers. But what you do get is this kind of uh, basic biographical information on 
uh, people who believed that they were slave owners. And so what the project has done is digitised all of this information. And these documents are actually freely available at the National Archives. Uh, but of course, you have to be able to get to the National Archives. You have to have the time to, to make that trip. So uh, it was very important to us that uh, this information be digitised because there are many people outside of the London area who would be very interested in this, both uh, both at a national and an international level. So the first process was to digitise that basic information. Then to build on that, uh, what we've done is we've built biographical entries. So if you think of something like the um, Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, it's using that kind of biographical information to, to build a picture of who the slave owners were, what kind of what kinds of activities they undertook, uh, where their impacts were felt. So uh, we've built these biographies using different research strands. So uh, there were a variety of kind of research areas that, that the project were interested in. So the first of those was uh, the commercial legacies of British slave ownership. So one of the ways in which people can search the database is by looking at commercial firms that slave owners uh, invested in. Um, so they were very one of the more interesting uh, facets of where slave ownership money uh, ended up was the building of the railways. And we've been able to trace things like commercial investment in the railways. Um, the next strand that we looked at was uh, political legacies. So were slave owners or former slave owners involved in political culture, either at local uh, level or at national level? Um, the next strand that we looked at was the cultural legacies of British slave ownership. Um, and this looked at the ways in which uh, money amassed during uh, slave ownership was uh, was then used to build things like collections of art or collections of books. Um, we tried to trace in part where some of these collections ended up. Um, we also looked at whether or not uh, some of the slave owners were involved in the founding of any institutions or galleries or museums. So the next one was looking at the establishment of historical memories. So some of these slave owners went on to write about the West Indies, uh, either in fictional accounts or in memoirs. Um, and we've tried to trace who these people were, what kind of works were they authoring, what sort of a picture of the West Indies and its inhabitants had they painted. So the final research strand that we looked at was the physical imprint left behind by by uh, former slave owners. So many uh, slave owners were very interested in uh, establishing some sort of legacy for themselves, um, particularly uh, an inheritance for their children. Um, so a lot of them were involved in, for example, the building of country houses and also in the improvement of existing structures. So was there anything that particularly surprised you during the course of all this research? Um, in terms of something that was, you know, quite a surprise, and I think it was definitely a surprise for the whole of the the team, was the degree to which there was actually a relative gender balance between uh, men and women in terms of uh, people claiming uh, slave compensation money. So around about the sort of 40 to 45 percent mark of all claimants uh, were women. Um, and this this was definitely a, a surprise for the team. We hadn't been expecting it to be uh, 
quite such a large number of women. I mean, the, the, the thing that separated the claims between men and women were that men tended to claim on a very large scale. So male uh, slave owners tended to own large amounts of land. Um, so they would have a very large uh, enslaved workforce, whereas women didn't tend to own the land. And that was part of... Uh, part of the kind of the, the coverture uh, laws in Britain, whereby um, a, women, a woman's property would become the property of her husband on marriage. So women's lands tended to be absorbed into uh, their husband's uh, ownership. Uh, but even so, women uh, still made up almost half of all claimants, but they tended to own uh, enslaved people on a much smaller scale, so maybe uh, one or two enslaved people. And this came uh, as a result of some of the ways in which ownership was transferred between people. So uh, women might have something like an annuity settled on them, which would then give them ownership of maybe one or two enslaved people. Uh, and this would act as a kind of financial security for them to bring them in a small but regular income. Um, and women, a number of women actually felt that uh, the slave compensation process was unfair towards these small scale female owners who uh, didn't have any land. Um, so their only source of income was uh, the enslaved labour. Um, and so they felt that there was a disparity between um, the ways in which you know, men were enabled to carry on profiting because they still owned land and could employ uh, newly emancipated uh, former slaves. Whereas um, these women who survived on uh, the, the income of, of an annuity on a single enslaved person uh, would lose everything. Um, and so there are a number of very interesting letters which go along with the slave compensation registers, which document these women uh, protesting to the government, asking for, uh, you know, an, an increase in compensation effectively. Um, and uh, in terms of what the enslaved people that they did, that they owned, might have been doing, well, um, Normally, if if, if uh, you just owned a couple of enslaved people, then you might have them as domestic workers or alternatively, um, people would work in what was known as jobbing gangs. And working in a jobbing gang was uh, one of one, probably one of the worst uh, experiences for enslaved people because they were literally sent to do uh, some of the jobs that uh, no one else wanted to do. They, they were a hired gang of workers um, and they would go and do things like dig the cane holes, which was incredibly intensive labour, um, which most enslaved people, uh, you know, really, really dreaded. So these were quite some of the kinds of jobs that uh, these kind of roaming gangs uh, would do. You touched there on um, some letters um, what sort of documents um, have been involved in this project and how did you go about digitising them for the website? Well, a vast, vast range of, of documents have been used in, in this process. Um, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do was to really gain a whole picture of the lives of slave owners, which meant uh, adopting 
a practice which would take in different types of history. So the different people that have worked on the project brought with them specialisms in cultural history, social history, economic and commercial history, political history and genealogical family history. Um, and this has involved working with a, a, a real range of documents. So we drew biographical material from things like the Dictionary of National Biography, the History of Parliament Online. We use census data and electoral registers. I'm now very familiar with Burke's peerage. We went through newspapers like the Times Archive uh, and the London Gazette, and they were used to glean information on various commercial investments, um, charitable donations, because if people donated to charity, um, often it was then publicised in the newspaper. Um, and marriages and deaths and, and political activities were also documented in newspapers. Um, so in terms of actually digitising them, for the online um, side of things, you know, what did that involve? The, the basis of the digitisation project has been uh, digitising the slave compensation registers. Now, all the other biographical information has been digitised in the sense that, that we've written um, histories of of where we've been able to get the information, we've written histories of each of the individual slave owners. And all of the sources that we've used to put together the biographical detail are listed at the bottom of each biographical entry so that people can then take those sources and they can go and do their own research. So there might be things in those sources that other people will want to use or will be able to interpret in a different way to what uh, the project has done and so what we've done is included all that source information so that people then can go away and do their own research. So how can people contribute to the site? Are there any ways that they can get involved directly? Absolutely and we really want to stress that this is a collaborative project and people have contributed already and there is actually a built-in mechanism in the database for people to continue to contribute because we recognize that you know we've been a small team and and the rest of the work that needs to be done is going to be undertaken by many hands so if you go to uh the legacies of british slave ownership uh, database. So that's at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash LBS. Um, you can not only search the database, but you can also contribute yourself. So if you type in the name of someone that you're particularly interested in and you bring up their biographical detail, on the right hand side of the page, there is an icon that you can click, which says is this correct? Would you like to contribute more? Um, so if you click on that icon, it takes you through to a page where you can then contribute the information that you want to. Uh, the page will ask you for the sources that you've used so that they can be independently ver verified by the team. Um, and then once we've verified the sources and that everything is accurate, that information is then put into the database and whoever contributes towards uh, the biographical entry will then uh, have their work recognised with their name on the uh, encyclopaedia page that they've contributed towards. Um, and finally, I suppose, are there any particularly revealing or interesting case studies that you uh, especially like? Well, I'm especially interested in the Hibbert family. They're the, the subject of my um, of my PhD thesis. So I've, I find them to be a, a, a fascinating family. I also think in many ways they kind of encapsulate 
the broad range of activities that slave owners were involved in. So as a family, there's 11 of them in the database um, and altogether they received £103,000 uh, with one individual, George Hibbert, who was the, the kind of the patriarch of the family. He individually received £63,000, which is roughly the equivalent of around £43 million in today's money. So to give you an idea of what that would mean at the time, uh, an average uh, worker, maybe a skilled artisan in the 1830s, would be on a wage of about between about 50 and 70 pounds a year. So that's the scale at which the Hibbets were receiving slave compensation money. And the Hibbets invested their money in all kinds of different ways. As I mentioned earlier, they invested heavily in the arts. Uh, they had huge art collections and book collections. They built and renovated many country houses, uh, both in the home counties close to London and also close to their native Manchester in Cheshire. Um, on top of that, they invested £26,500 in railway schemes. They invested in the West India docks. So they were really involved in all these different areas of, uh, of our research strands, um, and I find them, I find them to be a, a very fascinating family because they have actually, you know, managed to maintain and sustain themselves over actually a much longer history. The Hibbert's family history uh, of slave ownership goes right the way back uh, to the early part of the 18th century, and they were still involved at the ending of uh, colonial slavery um, in 1833, and actually. Um, if you look them up, you can see on the commercial legacy strand of the database that um, they continue to work as a, a, a West Indian merchant company right the way through into the 1860s. So we're talking about, uh, you know, three, four generations worth of a single family who were able to maintain themselves through this relationship with, first of all, slavery and the slave economy, and then later... Uh, after emancipation, they continued their involvement with the West Indies. That was Kate Donington talking to Matt Elton. To visit the website for yourself, head to ucl.ac.uk forward slash LBS. And that's almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think. You can email us podcast at historyextra.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at History Extra or on Facebook, we're facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be taking a trip to the British Museum's new Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibition, and we'll be broadcasting the winners of the Young Historians podcast competition. Do join us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 